electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod, the daily podcast brought to you by the team behind Squawk Box. NYC, this is CNBC Control 2. CNBC's Essential Morning Show. He's here, too. Every day, get the best stories, debate, and analysis from the biggest names in business and politics. All right, we're coming to it next. Today on Squawk Pod, the coronavirus outbreak. Former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb on what's next and how we can address it. I think that we can control an epidemic here in the U.S. if we take the right steps in terms of how we address the outbreaks that are inevitable. And those health concerns are hitting the markets, especially in the gambling capital of the world. This is the busiest time of year in in Asia for Chinese New Year. But you look around the casinos now in Macau and it's very sparse. Some areas are closed. Your dealers are wearing masks. A seasoned gaming analyst explains why and where the virus is affecting casino companies. That outbreak coverage, plus Huawei USA's chief security officer on the company's partnership with the United Kingdom. Frankly, we, we don't really see this as a win, per se. This is a very small step in a process that began 15 years ago. I'm CNBC producer Cameron Costa. It's Tuesday, January 28th. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand back you by in three, two, one, cue please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We're live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Today on the podcast, we're focused on the coronavirus, the information we're getting from China, and how the markets are responding. But first, some news, albeit expected, about the United Kingdom's relationship with Chinese telecom giant Huawei. We got some news out of the UK that uh, may have a big impact on our relationship with that country, the US that is. The government there announcing that Chinese telecom giant Huawei will be allowed to have a limited role in building British 5G networks, but the company will be excluded from the sensitive core of the networks. The decision was expected, though the Trump administration wanted the UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson to ban Huawei completely. Mike Pompeo over the weekend talking about this decision and uh, really questioning, I think, some real questions now, whether it's going to strain our relationship, what it's going to mean to whether our networks will ultimately be connected to their networks, whether this is actually going to ultimately turn into an even grander decoupling and what it means for the relationship with China. There's about a million different component parts of this decision and what it means. Well, You're it, looking it, at you. Mike Freeze. The UK is trying to split yeah. the baby here yep. by, by trying to please both sides, both the Chinese and the, and right. the Americans on this. The Americans, uh, the Trump administration said, look, right. you can't use any of it because right. we're not going to share secrets with you. If, if that's the case, we won't feel safe with any of those secrets potentially being hacked into. Um, but so this was the way Boris Johnson had been leading. This is going to be a very interesting litmus test, though, for whether the and this is a win for Huawei today whether the entire argument that's been made over the past year or two is about national security or whether we it's always a trade talk pawn. Love no, that. but because that's but that's it's always both. Been the it's always been both. Maybe, but here's the thing. If we, the United States this is, decides that we're going to still provide sensitive secrets to the UK. Mm-hmm. It means that actually maybe it wasn't a national security. After Davos, I'm waiting for 6G. I'm waiting for 6G anyway. I think that this is going to be a situation that, that really 
is the after effects of what happens with the phase one trade trade deal. And this does look like a way that the uh, Boris Johnson may be trying to please both sides. Trying to please both sides, but what does it do to this relationship with President Trump? Does President Trump fire back on Twitter? Does Mike Pompeo, who's called this a national security threat, say we're not going to we're not going to share information with you? If they do, what does that really say about the earlier contention? I mean, there's a lot to unpack here. There was so much that was kind of kicked up in in the dust on this ahead of time. Um, uh, Part of the argument in favor of going ahead and allowing some of these components was that. Look, you can't cut us off from a very um, affordable option for some of these right. things and tell us we can't do some of these things. Answers on the other side well, were, wait a second, is that what you would have heard if you were building these systems uh, during World War II or any other type of right. Cold War, that you would have gone with the lower cost option even if it wasn't as safe? But this is the huge question. Is this it's either a security, a national security issue, issue or it's not? Or is this just a, a lever that was used right. during trade? As you heard, this decision has put some pressure on the relationship between the United States and the United Kingdom. In fact, a month ago, Senator Tom Cotton, a Republican from Arkansas, introduced a bill that would preclude America from sharing intelligence with countries that use Huawei equipment for their 5G networks. Senator Cotton isn't alone, of course. Becky and Andrew also mentioned comments from U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo about this very issue over the weekend. And that wasn't the first time he'd brought up concerns about Huawei's threat to our national security. Back in August, he told Joe, Becky, and Andrew about his concerns directly. The threat of having uh, Chinese telecom systems inside of American networks or inside of networks around the world presents an enormous risk, a national security risk. Today, a senior administration official commented in a statement that the White House was disappointed by the UK's decision. Shortly after the news of that decision broke this morning, Huawei USA's chief security officer called into our TV broadcast. Joining us right now to talk about it on the Squawk Newsline is Huawei Technologies USA Chief Security Officer, uh, Andy Purdy. Good morning to you, Andy. Uh, This looks like a win for your company. Also, though, raises lots of questions about the relationship between the U.S., uh, the U.K., and then the U.K. and uh, China. And wanted you to try to weigh in on that, given some of the commentary that we've heard not only after the past couple months, but even the last weekend, uh, with Mike Pompeo warning the U.K. again uh, not to use your technology, calling it a security risk and saying that if uh, they did go ahead and use it, uh, that uh, we might not share sensitive information with them. Well, f- frankly, we, we don't really see this as a win, per se. This is a very small step in a process that began 15 years ago uh, with the U.K. They've taken a very measured, very somber approach uh, to risk mitigation so that they can get the benefits of technology. Um, much easier to overstate the significance of this than to understate it. Um, the, you, it can't be used in the core of the network. I, that, I don't see how that's a win. The, the backbone of the U.K. mobile network must not contain any Huawei equipment. It, it's kind of a, it's a nuanced uh, arrangement, wouldn't you say, at this point, Andy? Well, well there, there, there's actually much more risk mitigation in, in it than that. Um, yeah. Uh, the, it's important that we won't be in the core, but in addition, uh, they limit our participation in those parts the 35%. of the network to 35%. Right. Very significant limitation, and we can't have these uh, our, our products uh, near certain sensitive um, uh, locations. So do you think this satisfies Pompeo and in, in, in the Trump administration, or, or this is... You know, the, the U.K. went again. We, we were spinning it as if the U.K. just said, you know, uh, sort of said tough toenails to uh, to the Trump administration. Is this you'd like, I'm sure, a lot more access? Well, I, I, I think this is an appropriate approach, given the needs of the U.K. We can't predict what it's going to mean in 
in Germany or the EU or Australia. It, it, it's really an effort to address risk and, and make the technologies available to the people of the UK. And, you know, frankly, my biggest concern, as we've talked about on the show, is what's the longer-term impact of the larger effort on, on American jobs, a lot of which are at risk in the current uh, situation. Let me ask you a separate question, which is what kind of back-channel conversations are happening between Chinese leaders and U.K. leaders over this decision? Because it does seem like there's a little bit of threading the needle trying to satisfy both sides. Well, we don't, we don't know of any communication between the U.S. and, and China government. Certainly a, a number of governments from around the world, uh, there's been publicity saying that they feel like they're under pressure from, from both governments. And, and that's a shame. And certainly in my visiting 26 countries for Huawei, I, I can feel a, a number of countries uh, meet with us and, and they're really afraid to talk about it. Andy, how many countries are actively considering banning Huawei from all or part of their network right now? Well, the, the larger focus, on, and I think the only one that has actually banned us is uh, Australia back from July of uh, 2018. But what's interesting and I think very valuable is that all this publicity has, has brought greater focus and attention by governments and the carriers and mobile operators to what's really necessary to address cybersecurity risk in a way that's transparent and in a, in a way that the government can, can know that the risk is being addressed. And so those conversations are very, very important and, and they're ongoing. Not as much focused on whether to, to ban us per se, but on what's really necessary to address the real cybersecurity risk so folks can take advantage of the technology. You know, one of the things we did mention earlier, and I, I, I'd love you to weigh in on it, is the idea that if, in fact, the United States continues to share information with the U.K., sensitive information in the future, uh, whether it will uh, be some form of a litmus test for the claim, which I know you have objected to, uh, that you do represent a national security threat to the United States and are not just a pawn uh, <coughs> in this larger trade war. Well, it's certainly critically important that, that, that the U.S. and its allies find a way to share information, because it's, it's a two-way street. It's not just from the U.S. To, to the U.K. and other countries. And for our mutual defense, it's important to be able to share the information. There's no technical reason why the information can't be shared if, if Huawei's in, in 35% of the, uh, the radio access part of the, the U.K. network. There's real no technical reason. The information's going to be secure. It's not, it's not sent in some open text way. So it's, it's more of some... Um, uh, a bargaining chip by the U.S. to convince other countries to, uh, to bar us. But we've got to make sure that we can share information two ways with our allies. Okay. Uh, Andy, we appreciate uh, you checking in with us. Cheese will be next. Coming up on Squawk Pod, former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb on the full scope of the coronavirus. The problem is we don't know what they're really looking at. I think the Chinese haven't been forthcoming with information. And later, we might not know the full extent of the outbreak, its reach, or its cause, but we do know it's hitting the markets, especially the gaming sector. Casino stocks getting hammered this week as companies take precautions over the coronavirus outbreak. For now, we'll be right back. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod. Up and Andrew, Q. 
Good morning. Welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin along with Becky Quick and Joe Kernan. The total known cases of the coronavirus, they're increasing nearly 60 percent from 2,800 to more than 4,500 cases. China also raised its death toll to 106 people. That's up from yesterday at 81. The growing risk of a t- contagion prompting governments around the world and companies like Facebook, LG and Standard Charter to restrict travel to China also overnight Hong Kong announcing it would reduce cross-border travel to China. This includes suspending two train lines and cutting back cross-border tour buses, ferries, and flights. The U.S. CDC also issuing new guidance for travelers, recommending they avoid all non-essential trips to China. Helen Branswell is a senior writer of infectious diseases and global health for Stat News. And she points out that this is a rapidly changing situation. Things that seemed true yesterday may not be true two days from now. That doesn't mean people were lying or hiding. It also doesn't mean they weren't. But outbreaks are knowledge acquisition in real time. Well, yeah, thank you. It would help, I think, if we could speak to, like, uh, an FDA commissioner or something on this. Fortunately, we we will. We're going to speak to Dr. Scott Gottlieb, who has a lot of... You know, I was disturbing reading um, some of his comments. He, he's, he's, you know, he calmed me down about certain things, but then there are other things. Let me introduce him. Um, in his latest uh, op-ed, former FDA commissioner, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, says the coronavirus in China is likely more uh, widespread than the country's statistics suggest, and a global spread of the virus appears inevitable. Dr. Gottlieb joins us now. He's also a member of Pfizer's board and a CNBC contributor. You, I, I think... Instead of a vaccine, you might think we need to get a quick detection method that doesn't need blood or doesn't need to be sent out to a clinic to determine whether it is. And there's a way of doing that with antigens on the surface of, of the coronavirus. Right. right. I think we're going to have outbreaks here in the U.S. We need to start prepare for, preparing for that. That doesn't mean we're going to have an epidemic here. But to invert, avert an epidemic, we need to do better diagnostic Diagnostic, screening. not right. vaccines. Yeah. And right now, the diagnostic test we have requires samples to be sent off. It takes a number of days to get a positive result back. What you really need is a point-of-care diagnostic that allows you to screen people out quickly. And if people, you know, have presumptive infection, isolate them. Can, it, I, can I just ask, uh, what, do we know anything about the incubation? I've, I've heard anywhere from one to 14 days. Yeah, you know, I, I, it looks like it's about a week. Um, so you've seen a range of two to 10 days in some of the more recent analysis. Some people have said up to two weeks, but I think a rule of thumb should be it's about a week. That's typical of a coronavirus. As a former FDA commissioner, would it be irresponsible of you to, to give an actual estimate of what you think the actual cases are or just say that it, we probably are underestimating by a factor of what? Well, I think it's dramatically underestimated. Based like on dramatically a factor of what? Tens of thousands. And, you know, there's some analyses coming out that said that there may be as many as 300,000 cases in China right now. And we're talking about 4,000. And you're right. talking about hundreds the official of number versus, oh. right. Right. Also, remember, they, they only rolled diagnostics out to most of the healthcare facilities in late January. So they did, there's a whole bunch of cases they didn't even test. So there must be people who passed away from viral-like pneumonia that weren't even tested that we'll never capture. Um, you know, if you put it in perspective, in terms of the reporting that we have right now, we know the numerator. We don't know the denominator. So it does suggest that maybe it's less virulent than you would, you right. would suppose based on the statistics that we have. That doesn't make it any less concerning. When you look at the steps that they're taking, do you say this is an overreaction, complete underreaction? Well, the problem is we don't know what they're really looking at. I think the Chinese haven't been forthcoming with information, so we've been patting them on the back for being good actors in this case because they're behaving better than they did with SARS. They're still not behaving well. They've, been, they've concealed key information, including that this was spreading to healthcare workers, which they didn't admit to last week. So we don't really know the full scope of what they're facing. I, I suppose that they're facing a very large epidemic, and they're taking pretty draconian measures. Some of these are not going to work. The quarantines might not be effective.
0.0002 or whatever the influenza virus is in terms of mortality can add up to hundreds of thousands. If this is really 2%, which sounds okay, that's a big number. Well, even if, if this is 0.5. If it's 0.5, and, more, more and I don't know what, do you have any, right. do you have a feel for what it might be? What was uh, SARS? Seven, was SARS really 7? About 10, yeah. 10. Oh, I thought it was 7. Higher in healthcare point. workers. Uh. But um, look, this, this does look like it could potentially be in that sort of um, middle ground between something that's contagious enough to spread very efficiently, but still severe enough to cause a lot of harm. Things that are very severe yeah. tend not to spread as efficiently because they get their hooks too sick. You, yeah. can't, you can't go out and propagate it. This does seem to occupy that sort of middle ground, including that we seem to have a lot of asymptomatic spreaders here. So you don't think that we need to panic in the United States right now, but you do think that there will be pockets of fairly significant outbreaks? I think that we can control an epidemic here in the U.S. if we take the right steps in terms of how we address the outbreaks that are inevitable. I think China probably... Outbreaks are inevitable here. I think think we should be conditioning to expect some limited outbreaks. That doesn't mean they need to be large, but we're going to have some sustained spread in certain small pockets here because there's a sufficient number of cases ex-U.S. Some of it's going to get imported. I think China probably missed the golden window to avert... an epidemic already? in China. It looks like they're already in a full-blown epidemic. It, it seems to be across the entire country. And the question is, does this now become endemic? Does this coronavirus keep coming back? And, and this becomes one of the coronaviruses that now circulates regularly. What you worry about vaping and all things like that. Would you shut down these wildlife marketplaces where SARS came from? And this obviously came from that again. I mean, well, we don't know that for sure. Well, okay, but how many times does it have to happen? Right. So one of the early cases seems to have arisen in November with someone who didn't have any proximity to that market. The market may have become a place where it got spread but didn't originate from there. We're not sure about that. That would be weird. These markets have been a long concern of public health officials because they become a breeding ground for things to jump from from birds to mammals to humans right. with some kind of mammal like a, like a bat or a pig as an intermediate step between a bird and a human. So we've worried about these markets in the context of a bird flu for a very long time. And China has taken some steps to clean them up, but they still exist. I read an article that says hugging is actually better than shaking hands. Not if you're coughing all over your... I'm not so like sure about that. <laughs> if you're coughing like you're supposed, supposed to... Like, there was a sign well, you just, about you, carry, you bring Purell and you just... Who uh, all your hands hugs that doesn't kill a virus, right? strangers? No. Seinfeld's yeah. like, no. Remember, you don't yes. remember that episode? Something like, won't no. kill a spores. No, I didn't no hugging. I recently no hugging. Hugged. I recently Andrew. hugged I won't a hug viewer, you. Not He's got knowing some. it. He's huh? got some over here. I recently hugged somebody I didn't know. That's insane. I know. They watch our show, and they, this woman looked at me, and I, I, she looked like I knew her. So I, and she sort of went over. You won't shake I, hands, so but you hug? hug? And, so I, and, then, and then I realized I don't know this person. I would rethink that analysis about hugging versus <laughs> Thank you, doctor. Also, See, this is news you can use right here. Next on Squawk Pod, he's covered gaming stocks for the last decade. And now he's saying that the coronavirus outbreak is putting pressure on casinos and that it might pose an opportunity for online gambling. Seasoned analyst Jason Ader. Online play is up 90% over the Chinese New Year period versus last year. We'll be right back. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. 
That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash credit card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash credit card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com/activecash. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. Here's Joe Kernan. One, two, Joe. The deadly coronavirus is sending shockwaves through the world's largest gambling hub. Macau is seeing a sharp drop in the number of visitors from mainland China during the start of the Lunar uh, New Year holiday, and that has pressured gaming stocks, including Wynn, Las Vegas Sands, uh, and Melco. Contessa Brewer uh, joins us now with more. It's connecting these dots is. It's unfortunate, but it's interesting to try to see the, the, the fallout. Yeah. The thing is, they didn't really know what to expect last week before the celebrations started. But visitation for the Chinese New Year is off 69 percent from last year, according to government numbers. And the drop in visits from mainland China is even more dramatic. On day four of this holiday, an 89 percent decline in Chinese visitors. Seven cases have been confirmed so far in Macau. The region is cracking down on who can enter, searching for 500 people who live in Hubei province where the virus originated, according to local media. Now, when Las Vegas Sands, MGM Resorts and Melco have all told me they are following government ordered precautions to a T. Their customer facing employees wear masks. They have detailed cleaning and hygiene in both front and back of the house. The chief executive of Macau, though, has the option of closing these casinos altogether if the outbreak intensifies. Meanwhile, shares of those companies have plummeted over the last, last week. MGM Resorts down 12 percent. It gets roughly a quarter of its revenue from Macau. Las Vegas Sands gets nearly 65 percent of its money there. It's off more than 14 percent on coronavirus concerns. Win off more than 18 percent in a week with nearly three-quarters of its revenue coming from Macau. And Hong Kong-based Melco Resorts just punished down nearly 20%. In fact, Bank of America downgraded Wynn to neutral on the significant near-term risk, dropped its price target by $10 to 150 And the thing that you have to look at now is take, for instance, Las Vegas Sands, which has its big casino in Singapore, well, Singapore now has a confirmed case. Melco gets 40% of its revenues in the Philippines. Once it starts spreading beyond those borders, then other casinos get hit. And really what we're watching, too, is will there be an impact on Las Vegas? So so far, that's not clear. You know, probably not a surprise to see the dramatic drop, 89% in visitors from mainland China. People don't want to send their kids to school. You don't want to send your kids to school. You are not going to do something that's an optional entertainment. That's right. It's not it's it's just not surprising. You could have predicted it. I think they were their fingers were crossed. That would not be the case. They had scaled back celebrations for New Year on order of the government. All of the casinos had. Um, And, and, you know, it's uh, it's unfortunate because already the predictions for January were flat to slightly negative. And so this is going to be a big hit to the bottom line for this quarter. Contessa, thanks. Contessa, stick around. We're going to continue this conversation for more. The casino stock is getting hammered as travel restrictions continue in China. I want to bring in Jason Adder. He's the um, managing uh, partner at uh, Spring Own Asset Management. Uh, he was also a Las Vegas Sands board member from 2009 to 2016 and a top gaming analyst for Bear Stearns for over a decade. Jason, good morning. Morning, Andrew. Um, how long do you think this lasts, and, and do you think that they ultimately shut down some of these things? Yeah, it's hard to know how long this is going to last. It's really like... Uh an episode from the show Black Mirror. You have just, you know, this is the busiest time of year 
in, in Asia for Chinese New Year. These, you, know, you could see daily play typically is double what the normal would be. But you look around the casinos now in Macau, and it's very sparse. Some areas are closed. Your dealers are wearing masks, and it's happening right now. Would it make sense for them to shut down? I mean, look, it's still very early. We don't know enough information, but I think that from what I see and what I hear, you know, there are extraordinary precautions being put in place. Does it cost them more to be open or, or shut? I mean, this is what Disney is probably imagining thinking about. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's right at that precipice where you really wonder, you know, if, if it's worth staying open. But the continuity of the, the mentality in the casino industry is 24-7, stay open. So the goal of the operators will be to stay open at, at the end of the day. But it's, it's still too soon. We, we just don't know enough information about the incubation period and how much it's really spread. What, what, what happens? I mean, Contessa, you were mentioning before, there, some of these people are still gambling, just not doing it in the casino. How, do, how is that working out? Well, that's the real interesting um, observation I have over the last several days. Online play, which is mostly unregulated in, in, in Asia, it's illegal in China, it's regulated in the Philippines, is up 90%. Online play is up 90% over the Chinese New Year period versus last year. That's an unbelievable number. That really speaks to this issue of should the land-based operators be converging around the world with the online operators? Because that's, that's, that's really the growing trend. None of these casino operators have an online presence? Not in Asia. In Asia, it's still very much the Wild West. It's very unregulated, but they're not getting any business. The online operators, the Philippine licensees, other areas around Asia are picking up most of this play. So you think that's an opportunity, and maybe this is going to be a time when these casinos look at it and say, we need to buy one of these online operators? I think it's a wake-up call. And it's not just in Asia, it's in the U.S. Look at what's happening. Every time we watch a sporting event now, there's advertising for William Hill and, and GVC and MGM. Um, the European companies are very much at, in the leading position. If, if, I mean, if it's illegal in China to do this, would that put any of these companies at risk if they were to buy an online operator? China... Is, is, is a black market. Philippines is a, is a legal, regulated, and licensed market. But I'm just saying, the they're, they're such tightly regulated industries. I, I can't imagine one of the casinos being allowed to buy an online uh, casino here in the United States. Uh, and if China has, looks at it so askance, well, would actually, that be... Well, actually, MGM Resorts does operate online play. They have online here in the United States, and they're operating... So you could separate it and yeah, not worry about the it, regulators getting involved in yeah. that? Well, they do worry about it because the concessions all come up in two years, mm-hmm. and so they're doing their best to, to expand and make Macau a tourist destination the way that Las Vegas is. That has not been the case. They're getting their revenue still from gaming, right. as opposed to Las Vegas, which is getting its money now from non-gaming revenue largely. But they, they see that in the future, and they can see Macau going that way, which is one reason why, to Jason's point, putting the plans in the works now about an online market and how do you coax online gamblers who might be doing it It does, have, it does have to be eye-opening. Yeah, this, and, and, Becky, this is really more of a wake-up call for yeah. the governments, right? The, yeah. in, in Europe and the U.S. now, we're all moving more towards higher taxes, more regulation. In Asia, all this lost business, all this lost tax revenue – legalize tax, allow it to be at home, and let the licensees in Macau participate, just as it's happening here and well-developed in, in, in Europe. And I think that's really the trend from all this that we're likely to see. Jason Ader, thank you. Thank you. Good to see you. Thanks, Contessa. That's the show for today. Thanks for listening. On a rundown tomorrow, an interview with Boeing president and CEO David Calhoun. He'll address the company's tough 2019 and its fourth quarter financials. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. 
weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.